But no, you're doing pretty well. How many how many helicopter hours do you have? And I said, oh, about three and a half. And he went, oh yeah, three and a half thousand. And I went, no, just three and a half. And he went, holy Jesus, he's grabbed the controls. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 104, going to air in early August 2021. World Helicopter Day is less than two weeks away. There are details up on the website at worldhelicopterday.com and you can look at some of the events listed there that are happening around the world. I'd encourage you to get involved. It might just be posting your photos under the hashtag World Helicopter Day or to share some of the posts from the locations that are holding an event. This is a chance to promote the industry and the work that we do in the community. If your organisation hasn't got involved this year, and look, COVID-19 definitely has put some constraints on last year's and this year's events, then see if you can't put an early date on your calendars for next year so you can start planning something at your workplace for World Helicopter Day. I'm a big fan of virtual reality flight simulators for helicopter training. I pushed really hard four years ago to get it incorporated into our training for students in my last job. And it's 2021 now. I'm amazed that more flight schools are not using it. Back in 2017, in episode 61, I spoke with Sergio Costa from helisimmer.com, where we covered a lot of information about virtual reality and how it applies to flight simulators. There are almost 9,000 members of Sergio's Facebook group now, and it is a very active place for people interested in helicopter simulators, to the point where he's been able to influence the development of some big-name consumer sims to make them more helicopter-friendly. What I want to do today is revisit VR sims and see where they're up to. If you've had anything to do with helicopter simulators, then Chris Ryan may be a familiar name to you. Chris is the owner of Ryan Aerospace, a company that makes probably the most successful VR helicopter simulator for the commercial market, with a couple of hundred setups delivered or on order for the US Army, US Air Force, amongst others. This gear has the potential to reduce in-aircraft training time by up to 40% which, given the cost of helicopters, is going to grab anyone's attention. Chris talks about what it takes to turn an idea into reality and some of the journey that this technology has taken to get to the point where it is standard for pilots training at Fort Rucker. We also cover sim sickness and how it affects some people, new technology that is coming out in mixed reality and hand tracking, and what gear you should be looking at if you want to make up your own home VR setup for training. So this is Chris Ryan from Ryan Aerospace. And as we open, I've just asked him about one of his prized possessions, his Indian motorbike. 
Yeah, oh, there is. I mean, I, I rode bikes a lot as a kid, trail bikes, a little Honda 50, a TY80, YZ80s, and uh, RMs, all those uh, dirt bikes as a kid, and, and I loved it. And when I turned 17 and got my keys, I just, you know, pleaded with mum and dad, can I please get a motorcycle? Can I please get a bike? No, it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. And in the end, they, they said, you know what, we're going to help you with a motorbike. And I said, oh, look, you know what, I've decided that I don't want to do that because I know that while I'm out there, you're always going to be worried about me. And so I decided against it. And they, oh, you're the best son ever. And then, you know, then I got married and kids. Oh, you know, I should get a motorbike. I can afford it now. And my then wife was like, oh, but remember, you're the, you know, you're the sole breadwinner and if something happens, and oh, geez, okay, no worries. I couldn't get a bike. Then I got divorced and it was like almost mandatory that you go out and buy a Harley. But uh, when I got divorced, I also became a single dad. And uh, so I thought, no, I definitely, definitely can't do that. And uh, I just waited and waited and waited. And then uh, eventually I won this big, uh, this big contract with uh, the U.S. Army a few years ago. And, uh, and and my little treat when that job was finished, I just said to the guys, I just got to duck out for a minute. I drove up to Brisbane, went into the Indian dealership, saw this Indian scout and went, yep, I've got to have that. And, my, now my new fiance, she's a doctor and she works in the emergency department. She's like, oh, I can't believe you got a bike. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but it doesn't matter. I, I, I got the Indian. I, I've got some, some mates over in America and, and when I go over there for shows, we rent bikes and, and we go on these big road trips all over the countryside. And you know, the last one we did, we went from Orlando all the way down to uh, down to um, uh, Key West and uh, all up around through northern Florida. And, you know, we, we, yeah, we've done some really good trips. And a mate of mine said, before you go buying a Harley, why don't you just try out an Indian? So I went and visited him once in uh, San Diego, and we went and rented a uh, – uh, he's, he's got an Indian Springfield, and I rented the, the Indian Scout Bobber and just fell in love with it. And that's what I've got now, and, oh, man, I, I just love it. I just can't wait to get on it every day. There's not many in Australia. Like it's not a, not a common brand you'd see, but the people I do know, I think I know one other person who's got one, and, and it's a bit of a uh, you know I don't know like the Harley, but it's a bit of a lifestyle thing where it's it's that sort of unique <laughs> showcasing. Yeah, that's right. And then you know it's a bit like Ford and Holden. You've got you know you've got a, you know, so you're not a Harley guy, you're an Indian guy, and yeah, no, I'm just a motorbike guy. I like I like all bikes. Uh, I like the Harleys. I like the Indians. I like anything I can get myself on. So, um, but uh, I got to say, I, I, I do prefer the Indians over the Harleys. I just, I just feel like they're a little bit better engineered, and uh, it just everything just kind of feels right. And, and you know, and I think that's what you've got to look for in a bike or a car. It's got to feel right, and and my um, and my scout certainly does. So I tell you what, your poor mum then. So you decided not to get a, a bike, and she was pretty happy with that. But then you went and joined the army. Is that pretty much how it went? Yeah, well, it was just the Army Reserve, so I was only um, uh, away a, a little bit here and there, but I tried to get myself on a lot of courses. I absolutely loved the Army. I really enjoyed my time there. Work made it a little bit hard and a little bit sporadic, so I couldn't quite progress through the ranks like I had intended to. And we were living in Dubbo. I moved out to um, moved over to Tari. Our family bought a pub. And and it was quite a big pub with a nightclub, and and we were working some pretty big hours there. So it was a little bit difficult to get away. I got away on a few courses here and there, 
but but I absolutely loved it, and uh, it was where it was uh, uh, one of those trips. I was uh, away in Kangaroo eighty nine exercise over in Kununurra in um, nineteen eighty nine, of course, and got to go in a Huey and uh, in the back of a Huey, and just thought, oh man, this is <laughs> this is really cool. Yeah, but I know I love my I love my time in the uh, in, in the army. It was uh, it was a uh, a really good learning ground, I think, and a place where you really get grounded. More people should should try it. And you got to the UK. I saw a photo of you in a, a British Air Force uh, squirrel. Was that connected with the simulators, or was that still part of the, the reserve time? Yeah, no, that was actually that was actually my first simulator sale. So I. I I was a fixed-wing pilot, and I had a little Cessna 150 that I shared with my brother and my father. And uh, Dad was a Dad was a pilot uh, back in the day. He owned a Tiger Moth. He owned a 150, uh, then a 172. We never forgave him for selling the the Tiger Moth, but he he reckoned us kids would be trying to crawl out of the front <laughs> cockpit as he was taxiing down the runway. So he he thought he had to sell it. And uh, but anyway, so, we, so we, hang on, uh, really <laughs> so, let's back up a bit. So you, you grew up, you grew up flying in a in a Tiger Moth. Yeah, I, I I don't remember. I'm not even sure if I was allowed to go into it because I was the youngest. Right. But I remember hearing stories of Dad, uh, you know, t- t- you know, taxing down the taxing down the runway. He had a runway at his farm in Dookie down in Victoria, and uh, and he, he just had an old um, an old dirt strip on his on his property. And yeah, my brother and my sister, uh, who were older than me, would try and climb out of the cockpit. And uh, yeah, so he went, "No, look, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to sell this." And and like I said, we never forgave him for it. But he also ended up buying a brand new one seven two. He had a one fifty that he took in nineteen seventy six. He took it in an air race from Perth to Sydney. He came, he came sixth overall. And there was some. You know, there were some some, some pretty gun pilots and some pretty uh, amazing aircraft in that. But you know, it sort of set the scene for aviation, I think, in our family. And uh, and we all we all just we just always loved it. We grew up with it. We learnt to fly at a very young age. And uh, and as soon as we could um, get our license, pretty much we'd um, you know, we started we started I started training at sixteen. But you know, I was flying from when I'd have to put you know three or four pillows. On the seat, <laughs> so I could see over the see over the dashboard. But Dad used to give me the controls and teach me a little bit about uh, a little bit about flying. Yep. But it wasn't until about 1987 I did a TIFF. I did a trial introduction flight in the helicopter and uh, loved it, but couldn't afford to do any lessons. And then my older brother David, in about 2000, did a lesson up at. Uh, Kabulcha or the Sunshine Coast or somewhere, somewhere up that way, and uh, and he rang me up. He said, "Oh, Chris, you have got to get in uh, in the helicopters. They are so good." And I was mad keen on helicopters. A friend and I used to sit there at school instead of doing schoolwork. We'd just sit there and talk about helicopters. That's all we'd do. We're trying to work out how we can make a business where we can make money out of helicopters, and and so we do this many joy flights in a day, and oh. Well, we charter it out at this much an hour. <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing, but but you know, our dreams, our dreams were big. But in 2000, I, I, I went and did a lesson with a guy up at uh, Kabulcha, and when we finished the lesson, 
he uh, said to me, oh, so, you know, what did you think about that? And I said, oh, yeah, I was a bit disappointed. And he said, oh, yeah, you yeah, actually went pretty well. Like, you had, you had pretty good control. You did a couple of little landings there. You kind of were starting to get the hover. And I said, yeah, but, you know, we're coming in on finals, and I put my foot on the wrong pedal, and, I, you know, I just, I know left pedal means left. I just, you know, had a bit of a, um, a bit of a moment there where a bit of a lapse in concentration put my foot on the wrong pedal. He said, oh, yeah, look, don't worry about that. That's just lack of motor skills. That'll come in time. You've just got to spend time in the real helicopter and it'll take you 10 or 20 hours, uh, you know, sometimes more, but, you know, generally you'll, you'll, you'll pick it up in no time. You'll have no troubles at all. I said, mate, I can only afford one lesson a year. I'm only doing this for fun. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm not, next time I come back, I want to be able to fly. Is there a low-cost simulator that I can build um, or that I can buy, I should say, that, can teach me those motor skills. He said, I don't think there is one. He said, someone should invent that. And I went, hmm. So that was the, you know, the real light bulb moment for me. So I went home and in the back shed, I knocked up a simulator with a bit of dodgy welding and um, uh, I pulled a, a gaming joystick apart and just rewired it and, and uh, relocated the sensors so that I had real helicopter controls. And when I say real helicopter controls, I'm talking about a PVC pipe stuck to the side of an office chair with a lot of gaffer tape and some dodgy welding. and uh, But I made a simulator. And the next time I went back for a lesson, I could hover. I could take off. What, I could software? Land, I could what software were you using Flies then? sideways. Uh, it was Microsoft Flight Simulator 2001. Now, my my memory is that those early Microsoft flight sims, like the, the helicopter model was like atrocious. <laughs> yeah, it was. But hey, look, you, you know, you're talking to a guy who, for his 16th birthday, got a Commodore 64. And the the main reason I wanted that thing was because I had a flight simulator on it. It had about three frames a second. The graphics were terrible. But I remember sitting there at the airport at Dubbo waiting for my flight instructor to turn up for, for a lesson. And I drew a picture of a dashboard of a 172. And... And I was thinking about flight simulator back home on my Commodore 64 and thought, imagine if you could build controls like knobs and buttons and switches and you could do your startup procedures and your checklists and all those sorts of things. So this is you know, 16, 16 years old. I'm 53 now. So I was thinking about this simulation a long time ago. And uh, so all those years later, you know, it's, uh, it, it became something a bit more than a, a passion and a hobby, I thought maybe I can make a business out of this because this guy said, well, I've never seen anyone pick up helicopters as quickly as you. You should be selling these things. So I thought, okay, well, and, and when I told him, I said, look, I, I, I doubt anybody's going to want this because there's a piece of garbage. You, know, you should see this thing. There are wires everywhere. There's gaffer tape all over the place. He said, yeah, but like, could you make a commercial version? I said, I don't know, maybe. And I, but I did. I made one. And I photoshopped it up, but it wasn't even fully functional, but it, but it was okay. And I put it on the internet. I, I, I had a little web design business on the side that I uh, that allowed me to be able to make a web page through this back in you know, 2004 or five, And I put it on there. My first customer was the Royal Air Force in England. And they, um, I, I thought it was my older brother playing a practical joke on me. <laughs> And eventually I got this purchase order from the Royal Air Force saying that they wanted to buy a simulator from me. And I couldn't believe it. I told them, look, you know, um, I actually could do with a holiday 
if you will let me, I'll actually come over and install it for you, uh, free of charge. And and I think that trip cost me more than what I made out of it. So you I was going to say, do you, do you remember what you sold it for? I think it was I think it was three and a half thousand pounds or something in that in that sort of um, um, uh, area. And and I I just couldn't believe it. I mean, all of a sudden I'm over there. I remember one day I was sitting in the coffee shop. I actually built two. Well, not three simulators, I took two with me, with the intent that I was going to put the other one in the back of my car, hire car and take it around to flying schools, and I was going to travel around England and Ireland for two weeks trying to sell the, the other one. And I was sitting in a coffee shop, I had my laptop out, and I had a, a pen and paper, and I was just looking up, because I had no time, I had three weeks to prepare for this, I had three weeks to actually build the machine and uh, ship it, and and half of it came in my in my luggage. Uh, I had problems at customs because I didn't know what I was doing. And um, but anyway, I, I eventually I eventually got over there, and, and I'm sitting in this coffee shop, and and this girl got chatting to me, and she said, um, "Oh, you know, so what do you what brings you over to the UK?" And I said, "Oh, I'm installing a helicopter simulator for the Royal Air Force." Oh, right, no, so you're a, like a, a like a an engineer? And I said, "No." Oh, you a pilot? No. Are you a, what are you? I said, well, I'm a council worker. <laughs> I, I was. I was a council worker and I just felt you know, like I was completely um, uh, an, an imposter. And, and it got worse because I went and installed the simulator and they said, look, we're really impressed with this and, and we think you should go up the shore, up to the defence helicopter flying school because up there they've got a need for simulators and we're working down here uh, helping them with their requirements. So when you get back from Ireland, you should um, – we'll, we'll pick you up and take you up there. Anyway, uh, this is a long story, but I got into some shenanigans. I did a backflip off a stage at some nightclub and broke my foot into lots of pieces and had to catch a plane early the next morning from Dublin to um, – uh, to London, and I was met there by the Royal Air Force, and they <laughs> they found me on crutches and took me up to the Defence Helicopter Flying School. I had to make up some funny story that you know I tripped coming down the stairs or something, and um, and they took me up there, and they introduced me. This is Chris. This is the guy that's going to be building all our new helicopter simulators, and I it just sort of seemed bizarre. I bizarre to say the least because I was just a council worker and all of a sudden I'm getting marched around the, the Air Force Bay, the, the Defence Helicopter Flying School at Shawbury and meeting all of these people who were so keen and so interested and they said to me, okay, so what do you need to get started on this? I said, well, I'd need a purchase order, I'd need um, some um, uh, need access to the helicopter so I can take some measurements and some photos. And you know, maybe a flight manual, and I'm going through all these things that I needed. And I said, Oh, plus I'd, I'd like to feel what these controls feel like in real flight because I haven't you know, flown a school. Oh, yeah, no worries, I can, I can sign off on that. And the next day they were, um, they put me in a flying suit, and uh, and that's the photo that you would have seen on uh, LinkedIn or Facebook. And <laughs> and they they took me flying. The pilot said to me, well, Look, I'm not really sure what you'd. You know what? What you need from me? I've just been told that you're here doing something with simulators. What? What do you? What do you actually want to do? And I said, oh, I'd just like to, you know, get a feel of the controls in the hover, for example. And he said, okay, so 
uh, we went down to the training area and he pulled it up into a hover and he said, okay, um, that's uh, your aircraft. You, you have control. I said, okay, I have control. And uh, I took the controls and, and, and I held it there in a, in a pretty steady hover. And we were sitting there for a couple of minutes just doing that. And he said, um, he said, uh, have you flown a squirrel before? And I said, no, it's the first time. He said, oh, right. And he's doing a pretty good job because the squirrel has a pretty pointy hover circle. And, uh, most first time squirrel pilots have a little bit of trouble with you know, the rotors. Going the wrong way and everything else, but no, you're doing pretty well. How many, how many helicopter hours do you have? And I said, oh, about three and a half. And he went, oh, yeah, three and a half thousand. And I went, no, just three and a half. And he went, holy Jesus, he's grabbed the controls. And, but it was, it was a blessing in disguise because we, we were flying for about an hour. He came back and was singing the praises. He said, this guy's flying as well as a lot of our instructors. Like we have got to get these simulators. This is, this is what we've been, uh, this is what we've been talking about. So it was one of those things that, that really gave me the encouragement to, 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 to try and turn this into a business. So I built them a, uh, well, I built a squirrel simulator and there were some political problems there. They were saying they were only going to tender this out to UK companies. And I said, well, if I build you one and show it to you and you'll like it, will you consider letting me in on the tender? And they said yes, which I was surprised. So, off my own bat, borrowing money off uh, mum and dad, and uh, uh, knocking a, a, a squirrel simulator up in my lounge room in my little house in Taree down in New South Wales. Uh, I built this simulator. I took some video. I sent it to them. They said, "Hey, look, this is good. This is fantastic. This is just what we need." And uh, and then all of a sudden, the, the, the pilot that took me flying and the uh, the guy that was a big proponent for this simulation platform was killed. Uh, two helicopters went into each other in the training uh, in the training area, and uh, and he was killed. The whole program was 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 then put on the back burner, and and that was a that was a horrible thing. I mean, we lost a great guy and um, lost a couple of helicopters. The three other pilots, the other instructor and students were okay, but um, unfortunately he was killed. But it didn't stop me from going through and trying to build uh, a better simulator. And I was aiming at the gaming market to start with, but ultimately the uh, I didn't feel I could build a, a simulator that was good enough for the price that gamers were prepared to pay. Uh, and starting at £3,500, that's already out of the gamers' realm. So I thought, uh, you know, it's time to chase the military market and... It's a f- um, funny thing with the pricing. Like even this, even the simulators you're building now, it's a, one of those things. Like it's it's either way too expensive or it's really really good value. Because as you said, there's there's a, a certain market out there where they look at this gear and they go, "Wow, that's you know, <laughs> that's that's well and truly out of our price range." But then you've got, got the other customers who look at it and go, "Wow, that is fantastic value compared to what the the next equivalent fully fledged physical cockpit type simulator is." So it's that market <laughs> where it's it's at uh, it's either too expensive or it's it's really really good value. Yeah, and one of the one of the things that's been hard about getting into the military market at the lower end of, of the cost scale is that it's seen sometimes as being too cheap. If it's too cheap, it mustn't really work. It there mustn't be any value. So it's been a little bit hard to get that pricing right. People say you got to put your prices up, and you say yeah, but then you lose the business, and you, you, you're not offering you know you're not offering value and 
And if you put too much of a markup on there, someone's going to come in and undercut you and, and offer a, a, a product that's just as good for maybe half the price. So it's a, it's a tricky thing and it's, and it's a minefield. But what I did was I exhibited at Avalon Air Show and I had a friend who was a helicopter pilot. Uh, he, he was working with a company that had a booth at Avalon. He said, hey, you know, you should put Chris's simulator on your booth. And, and they did. So I, I had a, a simulator on that booth. And at the end of that show, I was talking to the guy next to me. And I wish I, I wish I still had his card. He was selling flight helmets. And we were just having a bit of a chat. And he said, what? He said, how did your show go? And I said, oh, I was a bit disappointed. He said, what? Why would you have been disappointed? Because your booth was just chock-a-block the whole time. There were people everywhere. You had 20 people lined up wanting to look at it. You had all this attention. I said, yeah, but I put a price tag on it less than the value of what it cost me to build it and said that it was a show special, X-Demo device, $7,500 or something in that sort of area, which was less than what it cost me to build it. And uh, and I didn't I didn't sell it. And I was just a bit disappointed. He said, mate, I've been doing trade shows for 30 years. Let me tell you a couple of things about trade shows. You don't sell things at trade shows. You sell them as a result of the relationships that you build over many years whilst going to trade shows. That's, that's it. So you can't just go to one trade show and say, that's it. You've got to go to every trade show, not just here, but overseas. And, and that excited me because I love traveling. Love going overseas. So now, one of the um, one of the points I've written down here is you know trade show veteran um, because you you know have been a lot. How many trade shows do you think you've been to by now? Uh, Forty nine international, and uh, I don't know about probably twenty or so likely. Wow, and it's a big investment. I mean, some of these trade shows cost you know sixty seventy thousand dollars for four days. To go to these shows, it's a massive investment. And sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, the simulators are too expensive, or you've got the markup too much." Yeah, yeah, but you know what? My life savings not only went into that, but has continually gone into that for the last fifteen years. And there have been years, even years recently, where I've lost lost money. The business has lost money, and I just kind of didn't care. I just kept going. And, you know, like those fish that swim up the, uh, up the river against the stream, you just, someone used this analogy only once and said, look, you just got to keep going. Keep going and just, you know, the strongest will get to the, will get to the end. And you just got to hope you don't get swiped by the bear on the way up. And, and that's happened a few times, but generally speaking, like I just kept going to shows. I went to, I remember going to a show, a uh, Paris show. And that would have been about 2009 or something. And, and someone said to me, oh, you know, what was the show like? And I said, oh, well, it was expensive. And but the, the show goes for seven days. So I was over there for two weeks with the setup and the pull down and, and the booth and shipping a simulator over there and shipping a simulator back. Two of us went over. It was, uh, it was a big, you know, it was a big investment for me. I can't remember how much it cost. I think mean, mean forty or fifty thousand dollars. For that, for that week, and they said, Oh, so how many simulators did you sell as a result? I said, I didn't sell any, and I don't think I'm gonna sell any. I went, Oh my god, you're kidding me, so I bet you wish you didn't go now. And they said, No, actually, I'm, I would do it again. Well, I wouldn't do that again, but I, I, I'm not worried about that because 
at that stage, I had about 5,000 people on my database. So 5,000 people got to hear that Ryan Aerospace was going off to Paris Air Show just after they'd been to some show in London, just after they'd been to some show in uh, Florida, just after they'd been somewhere else. And, and then I'd cheekily send a, an e-newsletter at the air. Yeah, after the show, oh, thanks to everyone that came and visited us at uh, at Paris Air Show. No one did. <laughs> I didn't get any sales, but I told my my customers and potential customers that you know, yeah, it's just one of those things. You've got to keep flying the flag. People need to know that you're financially viable and that you're still uh, and that you're still in business. Uh, there are lots of fly-by-nighters. People say, "Are you worried about people copying your product and coming in?" I said, "Well." Yeah, I am, but you've got to do all the same things that I did. It's not just building a product. You've got to build relationships. You've got to uh, make the contacts. You've got to understand how to engage with those contacts. You've got to make sure you support those customers. If something goes wrong, you've got to fix it. And it's a lot of work uh, in, 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 the, in, in the background. But trade shows have been my life up until COVID. And it's been a great part of my life because I've, I've, I've been able to travel the world. Uh, it's all been um, uh, it's all been claimed as business expense, but I feel even though it is hard work while I'm away, and it's very hard work and it's costly. I, I still feel like it's a holiday. In fact, I think I'd prefer to travel uh, working than travel for a holiday because I'm not the sort of person that likes to sit by the pool and, and drink a cocktail. It's not that's not my thing. Well, these dominoes that you've been setting up mm-hmm. and knocking over year after year, plugging away, it looks like about 2016 or so, a couple of things must have fallen in place and just that momentum that you had because from there, it really seems, you know, again, it's a really annoying tag of overnight success and you're the, like the, the typical one where there's, you know, 10 years of hard yakka leading up to it. But a couple of things started to happen and, you know, the awards and things you've got now. So what were some of the things that really – kind of kick that off just in the last couple of years? Well, I think I think it was just the sheer persistence. All of a sudden, I was getting known and um, and trusted by some customers who would buy one simulator or two simulators, and, uh, and word was starting to get out. In 2013, or it might have been 2012, I worked with an Italian friend and partner and a German uh, company and a, and a Russian company and we um, we took a booth out at uh, a show called iTech in Rome, and uh, we 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 put up our first uh, um, virtual reality helicopter simulator. The virtual reality headset was by no means anything like what's available now, but it was a proof of concept. Still, it was kind of laughed at, and people said, "Oh, that's a good toy." But what we were trying to do was uh, demonstrate that we had a little simulator there with, you know, that cost about $25,000, virtual reality headset, one PC for that, another PC for a guy in the back who had a, a, a almost a wooden toy plastic gun. and uh, But he was the rear crew guy. And then we had another guy who had an iPad and he was the battlefield commander. And he could task that helicopter to go where he wanted to on the battlefield and the pilot could fly there, and the gunner could shoot at targets. And people started saying, hey, hang on a sec, this is all done on a three-metre by two-metre booth. We've got a helicopter, a rear gunner, and a battlefield commander all working together, 
in the one scenario in a three by two booth. So we did that a couple of times, and I think Cologne was the next year, or maybe that was the previous. I can't, I can't remember. They kind of all merge into one another. But uh, I remember at one of those shows, it might have been the one in Rome. I, I went up to this booth, and uh, and there was a sign there that said Oculus, and these guys had virtual reality goggles. And I said, Oh, do you mind if I have a try? Yeah, sure. And they put on uh, now. Oh, now listen. You know, it's really pixelated. It's really laggy. It's just a development kit. Don't sort of worry. You might feel sick. We apologize. And he wasn't selling this thing at all. And I put these goggles on and I just couldn't believe it. For the first time, we didn't have this in our virtual reality simulator. For the first time, I'm seeing a different image in each eye, which means I've got stereoscopic view now and 3D depth perception. And we didn't have that in our simulator. And I said, we need these goggles on our simulator, what do they cost? Oh, well, it's early days and it's just a development kit, but you know, it's going to be around 250. Now, I'm at a military trade show. I thought he meant 250,000. And I asked him, I said, 250, what, 250 what? He said, 250 US dollars. And I went, you've got to be kidding me. And the next year, the show was in somewhere else in Europe and they had the next set of goggles out, which were better. And we were buying. Every time they released goggles, we were buying them and taking them to shows. I took took one to uh, Heli Expo in, I don't know where it was, Houston or Dallas or somewhere in the U.S. And at the last minute, I got some friends and partners over in the U.S. Uh, who have a flight simulation company called Precision Flight Controls. And I said, hey, guys, have you got one of my heli mods there? Can you? If you've got room, can you throw it in the crate? I might bring a PC over and put these goggles on there and just... I don't know if real pilots are going to like it, but you can just give it a try. And one of the things with virtual reality is uh, one of the criticisms, especially in the early days, was there's all the things that you can't do in virtual reality. You can't see the buttons and switches or the, the images are a bit blurry or you can't read the dials or you can't you can't read a, a, a knee pad or on your... Um, you know, on your on on your person or anything like that. So I went in with a slightly different attitude. Rather than talking about what it can't do, I talked about what it can do. And I just promoted this thing just as a a hover trainer and a long line trainer, because for hovering you don't really need to be able to see the instruments. You're just learning the motor skills. And for long lining, uh, whilst you do need to look at the instruments, the the, the big part of Long lining is, is learning how to fly, fly vertical reference, how to, how to hang your head out the window and look down at the load and how to manage that swing load. And the virtual reality is perfect for that, even though the goggles are still a few years ago, the goggles still weren't great. But it, I got an enormous response and I put some, uh, some details up on socials and I remember I was in, um, it was in Las Vegas, that's right, because the next, the day after the show, I was hoping to have a day off and go around Vegas and have a look at some of the sites, but I was just sitting in a cafe all day, just responding to uh, messages that were coming through, because I, I put it on a few helicopter pilot network-related social pages, like Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram, and, and the, it was getting a lot of a lot of interest. So, all of a sudden, I thought, hmm, this virtual reality really is the way to go. 
So that's when I started targeting the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy. And eventually, uh, in about 2017, I guess it was, they came to the, the booth and they looked at it and they said, "This is uh, this is this is just what we want." And I had a, a, a friend and a proponent that I met at a show in 2009. He was from the U.S. Navy. And he was that excited about our simulators, pre-virtual reality. And he said, um, you know, we need this. We need this. We could put these things in our lunchroom and students could be practicing hot starts, for example. Well, they could be learning how to hold it. They could be practicing the lesson they're going to do the next day. We could even put them in the dorm rooms. And, and this was an entirely different, big shift to the way helicopter training had been done traditionally. And... For years, he kept telling me, we, we want to buy these things, but they didn't have the money or the program changed. He retired, then he came back out of retirement, then he retired again. He came back out of retirement, and eventually he said, Chris, we we really like this new Mark III simulator and the virtual reality. The trouble is with all the budget cuts, we're not going to be able to get down to the trade show in Orlando. This is the guy who's the simulator requirements manager for the U.S. Navy, for one of the Navy bases they didn't have the budget to send him down to this conference, which was a five-hour drive or something. And I, I said to him, or he said to me, would you be interested in bringing your simulator to us? I said, well, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would love to. So I allowed a week, and we put about 200 students and instructors through the, through the, the, the course. And then he rang me up one day, Chris, do you mind if, if, if some army folk from Fort Rucker in Alabama come down and try your simulator out. It's only a two-hour drive for them. And I said, yeah, look, I'd love to do that, but what I would rather do, if possible, is take the simulator to Fort Rucker because I know what will happen. I'll only send one or two guys. Something will come up on the day and they won't be able to make it down and I'll miss that opportunity. So they set up a, a meeting and I, I, I put the offer out there and that gave me a week's holiday at Fort Rucker. And I remember driving through those gates at Fort Rucker. I just thought, this is it. This is the holy grail of everything that I do. Fort Rucker, the largest helicopter training facility in the world. And here I am with my security clearance driving straight through the front gates and setting up the simulator. And, and it was interesting because, again, I had probably a 100 or so people go Sure, but the big boss, Major General Francis, was coming down and he came down with his entourage and I'd been planning and preparing for this meeting for a long, long time. And I had my 30-second elevator pitch really well nutted out. And he came in, there were about 30 people in his entourage. Everybody, there were about 30 people in the room already. Everyone stood to attention. He came over, he owned the room. He, He walked straight over to me and, and um, introduced him, so he was introduced to me, and I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready for my big pitch. This is the pitch of a lifetime. And the colonel that was um, his aide or um, chaperoning him on this, uh, on this visit, this demonstration, said, sir, we've looked all over the world. We've checked out all the simulators. There are a bunch of them out there, but we've, uh, we've found this one is the best one. It's the most robust. It's the most realistic. It's the, uh, it's the it's the cheapest. It's from a well-respected company, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, well, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to shut my mouth. There's, uh, there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do or say that's going to sell this simulator better than this guy, uh, this this colonel has done. 
Major General got in the simulator and he it was uh, just using X-Plane with Dreamfoils Bell 407, which is a beautiful uh, aircraft flight model, and he just picked it up into a hover and he just put the skid over a, a light on the edge of the runway and he sat there for, uh, it seemed like five minutes, it could have been 30 seconds, but it seemed like an eternity and he just sat there with the skid perfectly over this this light on the edge of the runway, just four or five feet hover. And uh, then he did a quick circuit to finish off and, and he got out of it. He said, we've got simulators all over this base worth $20 million plus. He said, this simulator is the first time I felt half convinced that I was actually sitting in a helicopter. Fantastic. And the US Army ended up buying 32 of those uh, devices off him. So that was the start. I went from a one-man show to a, to a four-man show. Because when, when, when I visited the factory there on the Gold Coast with you, I think you had one other person helping you part-time at, at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, and it was funny. I, I hadn't hired people for a long time and I kind of didn't know what to do with them. And I thought I was the only one that was smart enough to be able to build these simulators. But as it turns out, no, you can train people and they turned out to be smarter than me and we they found better ways of... Uh, assembling these devices and quicker ways of doing it, more efficient ways of doing it. And all of a sudden, we got these things out. We we had a lot of troubles with supply chain, things not turning up, and our factory was too small, and, and, and just everything was against us. But we got 32 of those devices out on time, and, uh, and, and the Army was really happy with that. I was lucky enough to make a few trips, three or four trips over to Fort Rucker, to uh, help with the installation and just check with you know, with them and see how things were going. And and a really interesting thing happened while I was there. They uh, they, they they said to me, Chris, we have got a little bit of a problem. I said, what's that? And I said, well, this is the first class of students we're running through now, and we've allocated two weeks to do this particular task, and the students have finished everything in three days, and they're already just repeating lessons. We need more scenarios, or we need—I don't know—we you know, what, what we need some advice on what we can do. So there was this big meeting, and all the instructor pilots came in, and, and all the powers of be, and the, and the prime contractors, and everyone was there, and they were talking about this problem, which was actually a pretty good problem to have. And they—they they came out. They came out of the meeting, and the instructor pilot was. Um, was, was, was standing there in one of the bays, and each bay has four or six simulators in it. And he was looking at the guy in the virtual reality goggles, and in between all the the simulators are a bunch of monitors and PCs and things, so the, the instructor can see what's going on in the simulation. And he sees this guy flying, and he sees another helicopter out in front of him. And he says, hey, what's, what's that in front of you? Is that another helicopter? And the student said, yes, there it is. Um, that's uh, Pete, the guy that's sitting next to me. We've shared IP addresses. We've networked all these computers. And, and now we're, we're, we're trying to learn how to fly in formation. And this guy looked at me and he said, you can have these computers linked. And he said, yes, sir, you can. And he went, oh, my God, right, okay. You, 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 I want you filming up on the end of the runway. I'm going to teach you how to do circuits. I'm going to teach you about clearances. I'm going to teach you about formation flying. And then later that day, he rings the tower. Hey, you guys got any interns up there that could come down and act as uh, a tower controller? Just literally standing 
in the simulator bay just calling the things. They said, look, we can do better than that. We've got a 360-degree simulator tower up here. We could link our tower with the Ryan Aerospace simulators. And so you know, all of a sudden this, this little idea and it's just this little experiment also all of a sudden take it started taking on a life of its own. And then probably the best thing for my business uh happened and although I don't have a lot of data on on this, the, the idea was that the students that were you doing our simulator training were doing forty percent less training in the real helicopter. And so some students were doing simulator training, some students were doing training the way they had always done it. At the end of the phase one or P1 uh, basic flight training, they brought in new flight instructors to do the check rides and the, the pilots weren't allowed to discuss with the students which cohort they came from, whether it was simulator training or, or, or normal. So it was a full blind study. And, and it was found and documented in the Army Times by Major McFarlane that the students that did our simulator training and 40% less training in the real helicopter consistently outperformed those that did helicopter training in the traditional way. So this is why these programs have been called you know, Aviator Training Next and Pilot Training Transformation because this is the new way to do pilot training. Now, unfortunately, then, of course, we ran into COVID and uh, the Army had shut down U.S. Navy 10 years after that meeting that I was telling you about with, uh, with my U.S. Navy guys. They eventually bought 10 simulators uh, from me. They're, they're back at work now, but, um, but the, the U.S. Army thing has uh, is, 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 is slowed a bit. All right. Well, if I fire a couple of questions at you then. So what's the, what's the install base so far? So at the moment, how many of the, the Mark III's are, are out in the world? So, oh, you know, I, I, I don't know. We've got, we got 36 now with, um, no, sorry, 40, 40 with the U.S. Army because we put a couple in, into their recruiting command as well. And um, some have gone to some psychological and uh, medical research facilities. They're trying to work out what can make a student stay in there longer and not get uh, simulator sickness, which some people do go uh, do, do have. Uh, we've got 10 or a dozen with the, well, no, actually we've got uh, 18 or 20 now with the U.S. Navy. And then just before COVID hit, we uh, we went for, a, we were invited to go to the U.S. in just before COVID hit and do a pitch to the U.S. Air Force on uh, fixed wing flight simulators. And we were there with all the big players and uh, we weren't expecting to, to to win that job, but we did. And, um, yeah, so this little small Australian company got this contract with the U.S. Air Force to build fixed-wing simulators, which was kind of funny because we'd never built a fixed-wing simulator. Everything was, everything was helicopter. And um, we were a little bit surprised to win it, but they, I think they trusted us because they saw what we had done with the, the helicopter training with uh, U.S. Army and Navy. And we got uh, a contract to build two prototypes for them. So we did that. Then they ordered uh, 20 and we delivered those, then they ordered 50, then we delivered those, then they ordered 105, and we're in the process of delivering those now, and we're over halfway through that, and uh, we're, uh, we're expecting another another big order before the end of the year. This is where it would be really interesting, because, you know, 
for all the things I've seen, this is probably the, the largest number of, of a particular simulator that's out there. So I'll be super keen to see what trials they're doing and what sort of testing they're doing, you know, in terms of psychology and, as you said, like the, the medicine side there, just given that's the biggest install base to, to get that data back. Because, as you said, they had that trial there where they did the blind test. When we've used them here with students here locally, it's definitely not as fancy as your setup is, but it's still, the you know, a set of helicopter controls and a headset. It's kind of, you know, with such a small sample size, it's hard to kind of put that number against how effective it is, but it'd be awesome with that larger group to sort of see what data you get back in yeah. the next couple of years. Well, this was, and this was the great thing about getting into the US Army. So with 40 simulators or whatever they've got there, and we, we sold four to West Point Academy, or six to West Point Academy, and they are doing a lot of work on how to capture that data. And, and, uh, and if it wasn't for COVID, that would have all been done and finished by now. The experiment would be done. They, they, because of COVID, they, they just arbitrarily extended it for another year. And, uh, just, but we're holding out on it because like, like you say, you can, you know, I can say as a helicopter simulator salesman, well, you should buy our simulator because it's good and it works. But no one's going to believe that. And I could sell one to a little flying school and then I'd say, oh, look, we've had some, yeah, some limited success with it, and that's been okay, but that's not data. When you've got 1,300 students a year being trained at Fort Rucker, going through our simulator program with West Point Academy doing a big study on it, that is data. And that's not my data, that's their data. And, uh, and, it's, and, and, and it's going to come back. One of these days, I hope, uh, and, and, and it's going to paint an amazing story because one of the problems with simulators and traditional simulator training is a thing called negative training or negative habit transfer. And one of the, one of the issues around that is uh, some people say, rightly so, that if a simulator isn't exactly like the real aircraft, there's the potential to develop bad habits. So if, if the performance, if you can, you know, if you can fly this, this, Helicopter, for example, it's got plenty of power, and you can pull as much pitch as you like. You can you can develop some really bad habits that can bring you into grief in the in the real helicopter. So you've got to be mindful and respectful of that. And the U.S. Air Force did a study on the virtual reality training for their fixed wing program a couple of years ago, and uh, the Navy, I should say. And, and this guy was telling me because we found an amazing thing. I mean, in simulator training. For 30 years, and, and I've always been taught you know, negative habit transfer is a really bad thing. And that if you don't have those buttons and switches in the exact same place and the tactile feel isn't exactly the same, uh, that's going to result in negative training. But we found something really funny. We, uh, we trained people on a virtual reality trainer. And when they came in on finals, you know, part of the procedure was to put the, put the gear down, put the undercarriage down. And, they were in virtual reality. They didn't. They didn't have a real lever, so we just mapped the, the gear to the pinky finger button on the throttle, which is nothing like what it is in real life. But what you can see in virtual reality, when you press that pinky finger button, you can see the undercarriage lever come down, yeah, and you can see those lights come on. Yeah, so you get the feedback that way, and they said they found no problems with students transferring those skills across to the real aircraft. No one tried to look for the undercarriage button under their pinky finger on the throttle. They all knew that the lever was in front of them 
and they knew from enough training that that's, that was the procedure and that's what they had to do. And when I was doing part of my pitch to the US Army, I, I raised that as an issue. I said, hey, look, I, I'm as mindful and respectful uh, to negative habit transfer than anyone, and that's the last thing I, I, I want to do. But I, I just want to give you a little analogy. When I came to your country, I rented a car down in Pensacola, and I just picked it up, I put the keys in, I started it up, and I drove out. I'd never driven that car before, but I'd learned to drive a car before that. But there were some things I had to get used to, like driving on the wrong side of the road. You know, that wasn't too bad. I've done that quite a bit now, so I'm kind of used to that. But one of the things that I have a little bit of trouble getting used to is the blinkers. The blinkers are on the wrong side, so every time you go to turn the corner, you actually turn the windscreen wipers on. So there are some things that do require you to unlearn that bad habit and relearn a good habit. I'm completely cognizant of that. I get that. Uh, but you're not teaching me how to, you know, drive a car from scratch. I already know how to drive a car. I already know the road rules. I already know some of those basic skills it takes to drive a motor vehicle. There were just a couple of new little things I needed to learn. I needed to learn how to drive on the wrong side of the road, and I needed to learn the blinkers were on the wrong side. That was it. But 90% of my learning was done when I was, you know, seven years old, learning to learning to drive a Willys Jeep. <laughs> All right, I've got a heap of questions here to, fly, to fire at you then to, to bring some of these things out. We'll talk about hand tracking and, and gloves shortly because that will address a lot of that sort of, I, I guess, the weaknesses of, of VR, if you want to call it that. But um, I guess we actually haven't described what your setup looks like at the moment. So if you roll it out and they're about to jump in and start training, can you just quickly describe what the – the Ryan Aerospace Mark III looks like in terms of what makes it up, and then I'll, I'll fire a bunch of stuff at you about um, you know, VR sickness and things like that. Yeah, sure. So the, 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 the Helimod Mark III is is really just a seat and a, and, 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 and a cockpit with a set of helicopter controls. You've got the cyclic, you've got the collective, you've got the pedals, you've got the seat, and not much else. So when you put the virtual reality goggles on and and hook that up to the the, the PC unit, inside those virtual reality goggles, you can see uh, all the world around. You can see the cockpit. You can see your co-pilot. You can look in the back seat and see the guys in the back. You can hang your head out through the window and look down at the at the slow load that you might have there, and you can fly that helicopter. You've got your hands and feet on the real controls, but what you see is a virtual uh, cockpit within the within the virtual reality goggles. And as I mentioned earlier, the big thing about the virtual reality goggles, for those that haven't tried it, is you've got to try it to really fully appreciate what they are. It's not like looking at a TV screen. TV screen is just 2D. The virtual reality goggles are 3D. So you're basically running two simulations at once, one in the left eye and one in the right eye. The one in the left eye, your eye point is just a little bit left of centre. And the one in the right eye is a little bit right of center. And that's what gives you 3D depth perception, just like you realize when you're looking out into the, out into, out into the world. So this device is uh, just a very small footprint and it also has three motion actuators on there, little electric rams. And they link in with the software and provide motion cues. So you can feel the helicopter touch down when you touch down on the, on the pavement or onto onto the grass, you can feel it's 
almost like you can feel the flex in the skin. So you have a hard landing, you feel it. And when you're coming out of translational lift, for example, you'll, you'll feel the helicopter pitching back, you'll feel the speed slowing, and then you'll feel the shudder and vibration as you come out of translational lift. And that's an important cue to get because all of a sudden you know that all of, you're going to be needing to bring in power and that's going to need more pedal and uh, you, you, you're, the, the, the rotor disc isn't as efficient as it used to be. You can, you can feel a helicopter starting to drop and you can feel that little bit of seat in pants. It's not a great deal of movement, but it's just enough to trick your brain into thinking that you are in a, an aircraft that's flying. And if you're listening, and again, you haven't tried one of these headsets, whether it's for gaming or, you know, in the helicopter sim, it's, yeah, you can watch all YouTube videos, you can hear us talk about it, and, uh, you know, you've heard me gush, you know, a couple of years ago when we had a, another episode on VR with, with Sergio there, um, how good it is. But, yeah, you just, you just got to track down a headset and put on the, the sense of presence, the, the fact everything in the cockpit feels right, dimensions, it's, it's amazing. But uh, along with it, there's a, there's a big <laughs> range in how people handle it. I've got a pretty iron stomach now in terms of the VR side of things. But I, I know so the guy I'm hoping to get on shortly um, as well, he's one of the instructors I've worked with. He can last about five seconds with the headset on where he's just take it off. He just just cannot sit there with the headset on and just really messes with him. So any tips and, you know, how have you experienced the, the sickness with different people and, uh, you know, is it, do you wear the, the seasickness bands? What, what works? Uh, there, there are a number of things. In fact, at Fort Rucker, this is this is one of the key things that they're working on. And one of the first questions I ask them is, do they have any data or evidence to suggest that young people handle virtual reality goggles better than older people? And they said, we, we don't have any hard data, but our, uh, our general feeling is that, yes, that is definitely the case, probably due to a, to a, a, a more liquid vestibular system in younger people than, than in older people. Uh, not to say that young people are automatically immune and old old people uh, are not. You know, quite the contrary. It, 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 but different people do do have uh, different experiences within VR. And one of the other key things is is what that person's eyesight like. You know, if sometimes people might say, oh, that, "I can't read the instruments. Is that is is that how it is?" And and I say, "Well, I don't know. Maybe you don't have the headset on right. Or maybe you need to put your glasses on." Or maybe we need to adjust the focus. It's, it's hard to tell what somebody else is is seeing and what and what they're and what they're feeling. The uh, the uh, in my view, uh, going back to 2013 or whenever it was, I was in Rome trying that old pair of Oculus scholars, and the guy was really apologetic. I said, "Don't be apologetic." I said, "This is the future. I know that these goggles are going to get better." And in in my view, when I'm selling simulators. I, uh, I I tell people unashamedly that, but it's not it's not a it's not a money making value add a pitch. But I say to them, you have got to have the best computer to run the system, and you've got to get the best goggles. Simple as that. And the best goggles today might not be the best goggles tomorrow or next week, and you might have to upgrade those once once every year or so. So I say to them, you are better off spending fifty percent more on your PC. To get a 10% gain, if, because that 10% is is what makes the difference. If you've got a really smooth frame rate, let's let's just pick a number, and it's, it's not a great measure, but let's let's say 60 frames a second that you're seeing in the virtual reality goggles will give you a really nice smooth experience. 30 frames a second, 
Not bad if you're just flying straight and level and not doing too many aggressive maneuvers. Anything less than that, that's when you start getting, it, it feels a bit juddery and it's not very clear and that's what, that's what makes you sick. One of the interesting things the, uh, the, the, the people at Fort Rucker are doing with our simulators is they're testing some sort of image. It's, it, for want of a better term, it, it kind of looks like a QR code. And it's a poster that just sits in front of the simulator. And when you take the goggles off, you look at that poster for 60 seconds and it kind of resets your brain. This is all still experimental stuff. But I think the big thing with simulator sickness is, for a start, we do need to understand, accept and be respectful of the fact that some people are never going to get it. They're just not going to. The first show I did with the virtual reality I was mentioning in in Vegas, this guy came along with about 10 people and he said, oh, this is the simulator we've heard about. You can do long lining. Can you change the length of the line? Can you change the load? Who does the load swing? Can you do it? And I was saying, yes, yes. Oh, man. And he's like, look, how much does this thing cost? Oh, this is going to be the best thing for us. We're going to need this. He got in there. He took off. He crashed within about three seconds. He jumped out of it. He threw the goggles off. I think I'm going to be sick. And I went, oh, great. This, the show hadn't even started yet. <laughs> this was, we were still setting, <laughs> still setting up. And I thought, uh, yeah, I knew I shouldn't have brought this thing. This is a waste of time. But then, as it turned out, uh, I remember thinking it was about 90% of people didn't experience sickness. Uh, 10% experienced some sort of sickness or dizziness in, uh, in, in, in some way, shape, or form. But I think the good news is that's getting better. We're, we're trialing now the Vario goggles, which which have super clear resolution, and and the super clear resolution is just where you're looking. So it, uh, it means you can still have a pretty smooth frame rate. The rest of it, the rest of the it is blurry, just like it is in real life. When you focus on something, what you can see in your focal point is clear. What you see around it in your peripheral vision is just kind of there. So it's not really doesn't really need to be crystal clear and, and sharp. And the good thing about those goggles is they have little cameras on the front of them. So that introduces another whole thing called mixed reality. All this time we've been talking about virtual reality. You put the goggles on and everything that you see is just in the goggles. But you put the little cameras on the front, you can start mixing the reality. So now some things that you see are real and they are projected into your eyes through the cameras on the front of your goggles. So you can see the kneeboard on your lap. You can reach out and touch the buttons and switches in front of you. You can see your hand on the side. You can see your hand on the pedals, or your feet on the pedals. You can see the instruments. But when you look beyond that, just imagine a 3D polygonal line or a mask. Anything beyond that is no longer real. It's virtual. So that's called mixed reality. That's one of the key things that we're working on at the moment. And it is also, I think, one of the things that's going to help reduce that simulator sickness as well because some of the things that you're seeing are real and when you when you can do that it helps kind of ground you it's hard i think you'd probably have to look at the youtube videos to to kind of get a a feel for how that sort of cut out mix between vr and, and the real world works i think and i don't i haven't seen a in real life the microsoft hololens i don't know if he does something sort of similar but uh, I, I don't know if the, the current Vagio one was a, is the same one I tried, but I tried one just over uh, 12 months ago. And, yeah, it, it, it's, it's as clear as an LCD screen in the focal point. So when you 
actually look at text, it's like you're reading it on a, on a computer screen. It's, it's really clear. But then as you're saying, these cameras in the front, you can hold your hands up in, in front of the, the VR headset. And I, I couldn't get it to work in the, in the flight simulator. It was just in the other software. But it tracks your, your fingers and your joints. And you can sit there and wiggle your fingers in front of your face and, and see, you know, hands move. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's the second time. When I, when I first used VR, I got that, like, that childhood, you know, giggle. It, like it's just such a cool effect. <laughs> and then, you know, I got, you know, the two, using VR for, for two or three years. And then the second time I had it was when I had this, these hands in front of me. I tracked my hands. And, and again, I just had that. You know, that, that, that kid giggle happen again because it's just such a, an amazing feeling. But uh, have you got that working in the simulator yet where you can actually reach out with your hands without gloves or controls or anything and touch buttons in the cockpit? Is, is that mapped up yet? Uh, yeah, yeah. So there are, there, there are kind of two ways to do this. One can be done completely in VR. And when you put your hands in front of you, you can see a simulated set of hands. They're not your real hands there. A simulated set of hands, and if you head over to the Ryan Aerospace Facebook page, you'll, you'll be able to actually able to see a video uh, of us with an Apache simulator in Singapore uh, demonstrating this. And you can see your fingers wiggling in front of you. There are no gloves; uh, it's just sensors on the front of your goggles. So yes, that we've we've got now, and that's getting better. And we're, we're trialing some gloves. We're hoping to get a, a new set of um, new set of gloves that allow you to reach out and touch buttons and, and switches. Now, when I say that, uh, just imagine uh, if you're a spectator watching somebody in, in one of our simulators, they are just pointing at things in the air. They've got their virtual reality goggles on, and all you can do is see their fingers in the air. But for the person that's in the simulator, they can see a multifunction display, or they can see a starter button, or they can see a landing light switch, or whatever it is, and they can actually... You know, by, by just sort of wiggling their finger over that switch, that, that flicks the switch up or down. And uh, that's great for things like startup procedures and shutdown procedures and emergency procedures where you need to do these, these things in a, in a series of events. So that's all done in virtual reality, but the mixed reality is different. You, what you're actually seeing is your real hand, but you're seeing it in the goggles and, and the, and the, and the hand is a video image of your hand being projected into your eyes by the cameras on the front of the of the of the of the, of the, of the headset. So that means that I can look down, I can see the cockpit, I can see my hands, I can see my feet, I can wiggle my fingers, I can touch physical switches and buttons. But when I look outside the cockpit, what I see is virtual reality. So some of the bigger level D simulators, you know, I'm talking the $25 million simulators, have a full cockpit with all the knobs and buttons and switches. But to get that outside view, you've got to have a massive big dome and about 12 projectors that might be worth $50,000 each. Well, with our simulator, you've just got one or maybe two PCs, and, and it can do a very similar thing. And this is what's kind of reinventing the flight simulation training industry, is this new way of doing things. And whilst it's been a bit of a rocky road, and a few naysayers along the way, the goggles are getting better, the simulators are getting better, the simulation software is getting better, the um, accessories that, uh, that are coming in, like gloves, for example, are getting better. And uh, and, in, and in time, this is just going to become the new norm. Let's 
I guess, take some of the, uh, you know, yours is a, a pretty high-end setup. If someone's listening and they're at home and they want to dabble and sort of have a, you know, home setup, whether they're starting training or they're already partnering on trying long lining, can, can you give some recommendations for home kit at the moment in terms of some of the more sort of uh, consumer headsets and, and how much, you know, what specs you'd go for? Yeah, so as far as the consumer headsets, you've got a you've got a couple of options. My two preferences for customers would be the uh, the Oculus Rift S, and uh, that retails for about five or six hundred bucks at the moment, I think. And that's just a nice little nice little system. It's uh, you don't need uh, any trackers around the room to track your headset. All the tracking is done inside the headset. It's reasonably reliable. You don't have too many. Don't have too many problems, and the images is relatively clear. The other one that I'd recommend is the HP uh, Reverb G2, and that you've got just a little higher resolution in the uh, in the headset. And, and again, this is this is important for for those people that want to be able to tune that GPS or read the the engine instruments, for example, uh, and just require that little bit of extra clarity. The G2 is the go, retailing for around a thousand um, or eleven hundred bucks or something like that. And then coupled with that is is the computer. Now, honestly, a two and a half thousand dollar computer will actually run this, you know, not too badly. Generally, for for my military customers and my higher end training companies and such, uh, I tend to recommend. Yeah, a computer more along the lines of five thousand, five and a half thousand dollars, that will get you the best of everything, the biggest of everything, the fastest. It, it, everything's everything's the best. Water cooling, and like I said, you, you might you might spend fifty or a hundred percent more for a ten or twenty percent gain. That's worth it. If you've got the money to spend, then it's worth it. You can stay in the simulation longer. You don't get as sick. The instruments are clearer. You can turn the resolution up. And, uh, and 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 uh, you know, make it more make the make the simulation more lifelike, and that's what you want. Yeah, I'm still running the, the HTC Vive here at, at home, the original one, and it's still going to be a while before I can afford to upgrade. And yeah, if, if you're looking at something flying around, it's it, it's fine, but you do notice a, the sort of um, you know what they call a screen door effect. It's, it feels like a, a little bit of a grid there. And if you're trying to read like a GPS screen inside the cockpit, it's you've basically got to put your head right down in front of the the, um, the screen. And then at the flight school, yeah, we're using the Vive Pro, but yeah, I haven't tried the the latest ones as of, other than that that one go I got at the the Vagio, and it, it was amazing. So yeah, it's going to be very cool where these headsets go. Yeah, and like anything, you know, the Vario when when they first came out, you're looking at about twenty thousand dollars for one of those headsets, and we we bought. One of the XR ones, um, not so long ago, for about I think it was about five or six thousand US or something. And now you've got the latest XR three, where the price has come down to three thousand, three and a half thousand US or something like that. So it's it's getting it's like any consumer thing. Flat screen TVs used to be twenty thousand, now they're five hundred. So the, the same thing's happening in, in in this market because what we're talking about here are consumer products. These are things that not just for flight simulation, they are being used uh, for all sorts of things and, and that's good because it makes a, it makes a mass market and uh, brings, it, brings the price down because it's consumerised. Uh, where to next? I, I guess in two aspects, is there any other tech that's sort of rolling out that's applicable for these simulators? And 
and, yeah. and I guess in terms of sales and, and, and travel, we don't know when we were traveling <laughs> here in Australia, but uh, no, yeah, what was the horizon there for you? <laughs> I fucking travel soon. I'm desperate to travel. We're booking into all these international trade shows that, that I probably won't be able to get to. Uh, but we've got to have a presence at them. So I've got American uh, partners, for example, that are booking shows on my behalf and they'll man those booths and, and show off our products and, and try and sell them. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm going to be jealous, so jealous that I'm, that I can't be there with them. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully that'll, that'll settle. I mean, uh, during COVID, we've, we've been lucky that with this, um, uh, with these Air Force contracts and we've got contracts with the Singaporean Air Force and universities and a whole bunch of, we've got lots of other jobs going as well or, or running concurrently. So I've actually been able to use this time to settle in. We bought a new factory just before COVID as well. And, uh, it's five times bigger than our old one. Uh, it's already too small, but it's enabled us to consolidate things a little bit because I used to travel so much and, and when you travel for a show you need to there's, a, there's weeks of preparation then you've got to go over you've got to do the setup you've got to do the show you have to pull down you've got to come home you've got to you've got to sleep off the jet lag you've got to do all the follow-ups all of a sudden there's a month out of your year gone and if you're going to four or five shows a year it's it's hard to get anything done so I've used the last 18 months to really consolidate build our workforce up to about 10 now and um, we're working now on systems and processes to get the business to to run more efficiently and uh, work up to a quality uh, a quality standard, so like a, an accredited uh, quality assurance standard. So that's operationally, but for the sims, mixed reality is our our big uh, our big push at the moment. We just ordered a like a $300,000 industrial 3D printer, and we're going to go into making our own controls. So joysticks, cyclic grips, collective grips, throttles, multifunction displays, all those things that I used to have to buy from America or wherever they're going to be made right now here on the Gold Coast, and we're going to be making them all ourselves. That'll be that'll be a big push. And then finally, the, the other the other big thing that, that, that we've been working on for a few years and, and, and with our partners over in the U.S. with uh, uh, with the U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, and now the U.S. Air Force is learning management systems. So this is more based on the software. So because there's a shortage of pilots, instructor pilots, there's a shortage of aircraft, the, these simulators are almost designed now for students to be able to teach themselves. So what we're selling to the Air Force, for example, is a a system that they sit in, so it's a little bit like I described with the, uh, the the heli mod earlier, but it's for a jet fighter trainer. So this one looks a bit more like a jet fighter trainer, and they climb into the uh, they climb into the simulator. There's a touch screen and a keyboard at front. They load up the mission, they put their virtual reality headset on, and then they fly the mission. But the mission has a learning management system in it. So what that means is that, for example. We might say lesson number 14A is to conduct a circuit of this particular Air Force base or naval base. And the student takes off and there's a line drawn in the air that shows them what a good circuit looks like. So they know when to start their uh, ascending turn, when to you know, start their downwind turn. But all the while, a virtual instructor is monitoring the progress of that student. Did they turn on time? 
Did they maintain altitude within plus or minus 100 feet? Did they maintain uh, heading on downwind leg plus or minus three degrees or whatever it is? Uh, that way, a student can practice as much as they like and all that data can be recorded. And the instructor that can then come along that might be looking after 20 students in the, for the day and just quickly look, okay, Chris, um, you've, um, you've done okay in this area, but you're not quite up to standard to make it to the next, um, uh, to the next level. You need to practice this more because you're letting yourself down on this area or this area. Nick, on the other hand, you've done really well. You've, um, you passed the flying colors 98%. You're ready to move on to lesson 16B or whatever it is. And it might be the same lesson, but without the, without some of the cues in the air that are that teaching a student what to do. So we can develop unlimited amounts of lessons that allow an, ins an instructor to be able to determine the proficiency of a student theoretically without uh, supervising them. And, and I'm not saying that as a way to replace one-on-one -on -one instructor time. It's not. It's to augment. It's to augment it. So when the student goes up into the real aircraft and flies that circuit, he or she just knows everything's second nature. Even the buildings look the same. The trees are in the same spot. That water tank that they use as a marker to, to start their, you know, their downward turn or whatever it is, is, is all there. They can, uh, they, 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 they can reduce a lot of the cognitive load when it comes to Flying the real aircraft because they've been they've been teaching themselves they're, they're teaching themselves in their sleep and one of the things about our simulators because they're they're so much cheaper than traditional simulators they can afford to have a lot more of them as I mentioned we just sold 188 or something to the U.S. Air Force and this is just their prototyping phase this isn't the real contract that's that's uh, what's coming up <laughs> so they're, they're going to have these things all over the country. And every student, you know, they're talking about putting them in the dorm rooms so that the students can practice themselves. And they, but they log in, the data is still getting captured. So they might do an hour after dinner. Uh, that, that's, that's logged, that's logged as an hour of simulation time and, and the performance is monitored. But that doesn't mean an instructor has to sit there for an hour and watch that student. He just looks at the data and says, okay, look, you're flying this pretty proficiently. If it's helicopter, for example, okay, the task was to hover the helicopter in the circle drawn on the ground at between five and ten feet, maintaining a heading plus or minus 15 degrees for three minutes. That might be the lesson. And the virtual instructor makes, sets the scene for that lesson. And as the student's flying, all of that data's being recorded. So they could have done three hours of training that night. And the instructor can come along and say, okay, um, you, you, you achieved 95% proficiency. You just touched on something then too. Like you said, you know, they're training at night. And that's the thing, it, you know, it could be pouring rain outside. It could be middle of the night, <laughs> whatever it is. And you still get some training benefit done rather than turning up. You know, it's raining outside. You don't push the, the aircraft out. And so you don't get anything done that day. You can, uh, you know, you can transfer something into into the sim and and still get something done. So, um, yeah, no, no I'm, I'm a huge fan. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing what you're able to roll out for it. Uh, it's a bright future. The simulation industry is a bright future. All the numbers are going in the right direction. 
aircraft costs are going up, aircraft maintenance going up, aircraft fuel going up, simulation costs coming down, simulation getting better, getting computers are getting faster, software is getting better, all and all arrows are going in the right directions. That's awesome, Chris. Well, look, thanks so much for giving us, uh, I guess, an update and uh, a bit of insight into to what you guys got going on there. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to hopefully we can catch up with you again soon. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks, thanks for the time, Nick. It's been, uh, been great chatting with you. That was Chris Ryan from Ryan Aerospace. Their website is ryanaerospace.com.au. We are very proud of them for, for being an Aussie company taking on the world. If you have any feedback on VR simulators for training or any tips, please do drop me a, a line or an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. It is something I'm really interested in. Chris spoke about a, a QR-style image that's being used at Fort Rucker to help adjust between using the headset. If you know anything about that and if it's not against any regs, I'd love to see a photo of what that looks like and get an idea of how that's supposed to work. A big thanks to our Patreon supporters for bringing you this episode. Make a a big thank you to Heath, Gareth, Peter, Brent, Rendell, Chris, AJ, Jeff, Tony, Alidar, Jason, Michael, Ian, John, Jason, Michael, Kevin, Jake, Mark, Shannon, Hal, Ben, Jim, Kirillin, Bill, Eric, Mike, Stephen, Max, and Mark. Thank you very much, gang, again for your support. And look, if you get something from these shows and you were happy to chip in a few dollars here and there just to support someone at the running costs, please check out our Rotary Wing Show on that Patreon or look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Coming down the pipe, we've got a couple of episodes in the progress. There'll be one there on, on mustering. We'll cover flying uh, tours, EMS, and air operator certificates. So keep an eye out on the feed. Thank you for coming to hang out with me again. Stay safe. <laughs>